This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Thanks for downloading Cross Defense this week. We talk about, oh, this is, how about this? Death, blood, and heaven. It's not as bad as you think. I hope you enjoy the show. God's peace be with you. Hey, all right. Welcome back. Wait, not welcome back. We haven't been here yet. Welcome to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, bringing you each week we sit down and talk about curious theological topics to excite the imagination, to comfort the conscience, to give wisdom to the Christian mind. Uh, we've had Pastor Brian Flammy with us the past five weeks. I'm flying solo now. That series on apologetics has finished it. I would encourage you, if you missed it, to go back and take a listen to those. You can find the podcast for Cross Defense at kfuo.org and search for Cross Defense, and you'll find those great conversations with Pastor Flammy. I had to go back and listen to them myself to pick up all the things he was putting down. We're going to talk about, well, i got a lot of things to talk about today, and I actually don't know... I don't know exactly how they're going to fit together. I'm curious about about exploring together with you the Bible's theology of blood. I'll tell you why in a few minutes. I'm also interested in thinking about about death and resurrection, especially now to think about what is going on with those who have died in the faith now and what does it mean to be a saint? This past Sunday, the church celebrated All Saints Day, and there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a saint, what it means to be a holy one, so I'm interested in thinking about that. And there's this beautiful picture where they all come together, this idea of blood and and sainthood in Revelation 7. So, well, let's see. Let's start, let's start by talking about death. That's always everyone's favorite topic. In fact, I think the, the idea of death is probably the 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 thing that really drives our our philosophical and our theological conversations i become convinced that one of the reasons why the ideology of evolution is so popular is because it gives a way to 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 take death from being the, this terrible thing that we really all know and experience it as terrible and say no no it's actually an engine that drives forward something like progress or blessing or something like this and and I'm con- I'm convinced more and more uh, every day that the strength of the mythology of evolution comes precisely from its strength to give meaning to death. Now you can you can uh, argue with me. I'd love to hear your arguments. You can send those back at, to me at wolfmuller.co/comment or contact uh, contact slash contact. You can send me your complaints or your insights about that. But but I think this is one of the reasons why the big ideological sort of conversation that we face in our own day uh, between creation and evolution is 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 because we have to we have to square up to this question what do we think about death now the Bible's pretty clear about this what the Bible teaches us is that death is the separation of body and soul we were created to be body and soul together but because of the first sin Adam and Eve taking the fruit that God forbade and eating it, it brought death into the world. In fact, that's what God says. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. In the Hebrew, dying you will die. It will be a double death on that day. And so and so it happens. When Adam takes the fruit from his wife Eve and bites into it, it brings death into the entire cosmos. And there's been death all the way through. Now, some people say, hey, and we've got to talk about this kind of stuff because we're supposed to be doing apologetics here on this show. So some people will make the argument, well, look, it wasn't even true. 
I mean, Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they, and they didn't die. Well, first we want to recognize that what God promised, in fact, was a double death. In Hebrew, this is just a tricky thing with the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language, if you want to intensify something, you just repeat it. So it was really, remember how God looked at Adam and Eve and said it was very good? There's no word for very in the Hebrew, at least that I know of. This is what I was taught. You just repeat it. You say, it was good, good. It was a double good. Well, that also is what God says about eating the fruit. Dying, you will die. There will be a double death. But that, I think, should be understood more literally. So that God is saying that on the day that you are eating the fruit, you're going to experience a double death, a spiritual death, and also later a physical death. And the spiritual death comes immediately. Adam and Eve recognize, can you imagine this? They recognize that they're naked. They go and they make fig leaves for themselves. And then the culmination of all of it, is that they hear the sound of the Lord in the garden, and they run from him. Now that, that if you want a picture of death, that's the picture of death. I'm sure we've talked about this before, but, but the way I like to think of it is like this. I, I've done some traveling, especially the last couple of years I've had to travel, and to come home, and one of the best things about coming home is the children hear you coming home. Maybe they hear the garage door opening, or they come to meet you at the airport, and they see you, and they run towards you, and they jump on you. When the kids were little, they would grab a hold of my legs, you know, and I would walk around. They'd be grabbing a hold of me. It was so fantastic. I mean, it's really, it was wonderful. But can I, I imagine that I, I get home, and the kids are nowhere to be found. Where are they? And I, and I look around for them, and not only are they nowhere to be found, but I, I figure out that they're actually hiding from me. And they're hiding from me because they think that I'm going to come and beat them up. They're, they're hiding for fear. They're shaking in the, in the closet or under the bed because they're, they're sure that when I find them, I'm going to destroy them. Well, that's how it was with Adam and Eve. They were sure that when the Lord found them, he was going to destroy them because they, after all, had destroyed anything. If you want a picture of spiritual death, it's Adam and Eve wrapped in their fig leaves, hiding in the bushes out of fear for the sound of the Lord walking in the garden with the devil there with them. It's just absolutely horrible and incredible that it got there so fast from God's invention of paradise to this fall into sin and death. So you have the spiritual death and then you have the physical death that follows and the first person to experience it after the animals, especially the animal that God sacrifices, is Abel, can you believe it? Murdered by the hands of his own brother and he spills his blood. And at that point, uh, we, at, at that point we have this introduction of physical death into the biblical narrative. The separation of body and soul. The unnat let's call it this. Death is the unnatural separation of body and soul. Now, when we talk about the saints, like for example on All Saints Day, which we celebrated last Sunday, we're normally thinking about those Christians who have died and their souls rest before the Lord Jesus in heaven. They're gathered around his throne in heaven. And normally when we use this word saint, we're talking about those who have, well, I don't know, you, you can tell me again if you think I'm wrong about this, but normally when we use the word saint, we're talking about those who have achieved some sort of spectacular level of, of good works with their lives, that they've achieved some sort of level of holiness or, or a state of even perfection. This was the medieval Catholic idea. That you could fill up your own merit, your own treasury, your own efforts to achieve a certain level of holiness so that when you died, died, you could skip purgatory and go straight into heaven itself. 
And, and when you did that, you received the office of intercessor. If you were a saint, then you could receive petitions and pass on those petitions to God on his throne. That was the Roman Catholic idea. And I think we use that in popular parlance today. Like if you tell someone, oh, you're such a saint, it's probably because they, they did some sort of good work for you. They accomplished some sort of really nice thing, they, that they went out of their way to be helpful to you or, or something like this. And so we say, wow, that's, you're a real saint. You, you, you're above and beyond. On the good work scale, A plus for you. Head of the class when it comes to being good. And for some reason, and I think I know why, I think there's a spiritual reason. But for some reason, whenever we think of being a saint, or the same thing with the word holy, I don't know if you've noticed that, we use the word holy in the same way, we always reduce it down to morality. If someone is a holy person, it's because they do a ton of good works. If someone's a saint, it's because they do a ton of good works. And we think of these things in terms of of moral goodness. And, and, and I want to make sure that I get this clear, that we reduce it down to morality. What I'm going to talk about is not, is not excluding morality, but the biblical idea of being a saint is much more than that. It's not because we're so full of good works that we get an A-plus on the good works test. In the, in the biblical idea, to be a saint means to be set apart for God's name and God's word. In fact, the Bible talks about not only saints as holy people, but it also talks about holy places, holy hills, holy mountains, holy forks, holy buildings. And that's not to say that one building does more good works than another building, that one hill accomplishes more uh, moral uh, effort and, and, and accomplishes more moral good things than another hill. No, that's not what it means. It means that that hill and that fork and that building and that day and that year and that time and that person are set apart for the Lord's word and in the Lord's name. That's, that's what it means to be a holy one or to be a saint. Now, this is important for us when we read the Bible. Because, for example, when we read how St. Paul starts all of his letters, he addresses them, these letters, to the saints, to those who are in Corinth. What a mess the church of Corinth was. To those who were in Corinth called saints, to the saints of God in Rome, to the saints of God in Colossae, to the saints of God in Ephesus, to the saints of God in Philippi, that Paul considers really every Christian to be a saint. And it turns out that a saint, then, is not a person who has achieved this kind of spectacular moral superiority, but rather a saint is one whom Jesus has claimed as his own. A saint is one who the Lord has taken and put his name on them. In other words, to be a saint is to be baptized. Now, I, don't, I want you to wonder what, what happens when you think of yourself in this way, when you think to yourself, Hey, hey, I'm a, I'm a saint. I'm one of the Lord's saints. I think this makes a profound difference in the way that we, that we think about ourselves. Or even more so, if we think about the other people that we're sitting at church with or the other people in our family. If husbands would look at their wives and wives would look at their husbands and moms and dads would look at their children and children would look at their parents and say, Hey, you're a saint. You're a holy one. You, you are set apart for God and for his word and for his name and for his kindness. And what that means, because we're set apart by the Lord's word, that means when we die, when our bodies are unnaturally rendered from our souls, we stand before the Lord in his glory. 
Now, this is not accomplished by our own works or by by our own efforts or by our own doing. It's all done by the suffering and the death of Jesus. He's the one who calls us holy. He's the one who forgives our sins. He's the one who, who bears all of our sins in his own body so that he can give us his own righteousness. This came up, this was interesting, it happened last night at church, at, at Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church here in Austin, Texas. And, and I'm busy learning sign language, but I'm, man, I have so much to learn. And one of the really interesting things that happens in Bible studies is we'll have a sign for a particular word, and we have to say, well, why is it that way? And we have to get into it, and we have to, we have to dig into it. There's a, a couple of different signs, for example, for baptism. One sign takes your thumbs up and you go down and up like you're going under the water. But there's another sign, which is like someone sprinkling you on the head. And those two different words for baptism are there because there's two different traditions on baptism. And one of the things we were wrestling with last night was the word for righteousness because the sign for righteousness that is the most common sign would indicate that you're doing things right by the book that you're getting it all lined up just right. But we had to say that there's two ways to be righteous. There's the righteousness of the law, which comes from our own obedience, and then there's the righteousness of the gospel, which comes from the forgiveness of sins. And we are saints not because of the righteousness of the law, but because of the righteousness of the gospel. We are saints and holy ones of God, not because we've managed to do all the things that God has required of us, but because Christ Jesus has done all of those things for us. We are saints not because we've filled up the bucket of good works, but because Jesus has bled and died for us. And he has given his righteousness to us, like St. Paul says, Behold what manner of love, oh, this is John, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. Or, or Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that we are God's, we, we are bearers of God's name, bearers of God's word, bearers of God's righteousness. And that is what makes us saints, so that we can die without fear. We can die knowing that there is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can live and die with this great confidence that we belong to God, and when we die, he's simply calling us home. And that's why we can rejoice in all saints, at those who rest from their labors, whose works follow them, because we know that to die, that for the Christian, to die is gain. To die is sleep. To die is to close our eyes and open them to behold the face of Jesus. For us to die is to be gathered to our fathers. It is to depart in peace. It is to be with the Lord. It is to rest from our labors. So that for us to die is also joy and peace. So we rejoice in the death of the saints. And we rejoice that one day the Lord will have that gift of death for us. Okay, part one. 
When we come back, we're going to talk about part two. We're going to pick up the Bible story about blood. We'll start. We mentioned Cain and Abel. We'll pick it up from there, see where it goes until we get to the New Testament and all these great passages about what the blood of Jesus does with our sins. You're listening to Cross Defense, and I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. And I'll be right back. Stay with us. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive word and sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide word and sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. Here is what our listeners are saying about KFUO Radio. I want to say that I'm very happy that you're on the air. Your theology is excellent. I've been a member of the LCMS for about 18, 19 years, and I still have to get hit up on the side of the head with the gospel. <laughs> it's a never-ending battle, but thank you for being there. Lord's blessing to you. To leave a message on the KFUO comment line, call 314-996-1542. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Worldwide KFUO. Are you the type of person who loves their community and wants it to be the best it can be? Now it's easier than ever to do your part. Go to RecycleMo.com to see just how easy it is to recycle the right way. Or if you already recycle and want to be as efficient as possible, RecycleMo.com can tell you what should and should not be recycled in your area. Become part of the clean recycling movement today. It's the right thing to do. Sponsored by the Missouri Department of Natural Resources. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Oratio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We start... <laughs> this is... <laughs> I don't know. Radio Host 101 class says, if you talk about death in the first segment, you probably shouldn't talk about blood in the second segment. But I didn't take that class. We're talking about blood. Now, it's a very, it's a very interesting theme, blood in the Bible. I was thinking about it because... Here at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, where I'm a pastor, there's one of the windows, a Reformation window. It's really actually interesting how there's there's a, almost all of the windows are straight from the Scriptures, except for three. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the story of church history kind of is told around the outside. And it, so it goes Old Testament, New Testament, birth, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and then Acts. There's a Peter window, a Paul window, and then... And then a Germany window, an America window, an Austin, Texas window. So in the Germany window, the Reformation window, there's a hand. There's no face of Luther, but it's his hand, and he's pointing to the Bible. And the Bible has the Gospels on it. There's a mark in the Old and New Testament, and the pages are red. 
Now, this is the thing that's very interesting. The pages of the Bible are read, and a lot of you will remember, if you're if you got a couple of years under your belt, when the Bibles used to be published that way, the Bibles were painted, the pages of the Bible were painted red. Now, I think that's a good reminder because the Bible is a book about blood. It's all over, it's, it's all over the scriptures. It starts with Cain shedding the blood of Abel, and Hebrews mentions that. It talks about the blood of Abel crying out for vengeance. In fact, it says that in the history, the Lord says, His blood, Abel's blood, is crying out to me, and I can hear him crying out. It's an amazing, amazing text. But, the, but blood is not only uh, an indicator of death. It also has to do with life. There's this particular verse in Leviticus that says, the blood, the life is in the blood, and that's repeated by the Lord to Moses five or six times. The life is in the blood. So that from right from the very beginning, the Lord is going to provide a blood sacrifice to cover sin. And we see a picture of this already in the Garden of Eden. We, we talked about in the first segment this, this picture of death where Adam and Eve are hiding from the Lord in the garden. They're dressed in their fig leaves, which is like a picture of every human religion, just covering your shame by your own efforts, by p- pasting fig leaves around yourself. This is, this is works righteousness to the extreme. It's the idea that I can make myself acceptable to God by my own doings. It's just embarrassing, really. And we know it doesn't work when the law of God comes, the, the, fa- the footsteps of the Lord in the, in the garden, blam, blam, chasing Adam and Eve down, and they realize that the fig leaves are not enough, but what will be enough? And can you imagine there, Adam and Eve standing there when the Lord takes an animal, who knows what, a lamb or something? Maybe the animal's extinct. The Lord himself takes an animal and he slaughters it there and he skins it. And he takes that skin, still warm, and he and he wraps it around the body of Adam and Eve. And they say, is this, is this what it takes to, to cover our shame? And, and the Lord says, no, just wait till you see what it will take to cover your shame. So that blood and, and that sacrifice is preached all through the Old Testament. We remember, for example, remember the Passover? It's going to be the 10th plague and the Lord is going to, is going to kill the firstborn. In the whole land. And so the Lord tells, tells Moses to give the people these instructions, to take a lamb and to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And when the angel of death sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, it will pass over. And so the people do it, and the angel of death passes over, and they survive. What a picture of Christ. And then in, once they go into the wilderness, the Lord takes them up to Mount Sinai and he gives them all these institutions for worship, including a number of sacrifices. And one of the distinctions of the sacrifice is th- this question, is blood involved? I mean, some of the sacrifices involved wheat and grain and, and, and things like this. There's no blood involved in that. But some involve blood, of the, the blood of oxen or the blood of goats or the blood of lambs. And this is one of the ways you can tell what was happening in the sacrifices. If the sacrifice was for the forgiveness of sins, then it involved blood. If the sacrifice was an atoning sacrifice, it involved blood. In fact, probably the clearest picture we have is the, is the Day of Atonement, where the Lord says, okay, it's a, it's a, long, it's a long day. I mean, if you're a priest, you're, you know, you're sleeping in after the Day of Atonement because you're making so many sacrifices, I mean, dozens of sacrifices, and you're changing your clothes 20 different times, and you're doing all this different stuff. But the key, the key moment of the Day of Atonement is when the blood of the, 
of the goat that is sacrificed for the sins of the people is carried into the Holy of Holies. The Lord has his tabernacle set up there. And remember, the tabernacle has two rooms in it. It has the holy place and then the most holy place, or the holy of holies. The holy place had activity every day. They'd put the showbread out there. They'd burn the incense. The priests were in and out of the holy place all the time. But you would only go into the holy of holies twice a year on the same day, the Day of Atonement. And in that most holy place, there was a chair, a seat, the mercy seat, which was a, a box that was made out of acacia wood, and it had gold all around it. And in that box was a pot full of manna and Moses's rod or Aaron's staff. Was it Moses or Aaron's? One of those guys' staff that bloomed with almonds. That must have been Aaron's staff that bloomed. And then the Ten Commandments. That's the main thing. The stone tablets, the Ten Commandments are there, and then the top of it is pure gold, the mercy seat, the throne of God, with the two cherubim with their outstretched wings on top of this seat. Now you have to picture this as the throne of God, because that's what Moses was making a copy of. Remember when Moses was on the top of the mountain, the Lord said to him, make a copy of all the things that you see, and the tabernacle then, and then the temple, becomes a copy of all those things that Moses saw, including, most importantly, this seat, this throne room, this throne of God, where the glory of God rested, and Moses makes a copy of it. So there's God sitting on top of the Ten Commandments. Now that's, that should be, for you and for me, a little bit frightful. I mean, you think if you get called into the principal's room, the principal's office, and on the wall right behind the principal is a list of all of the rules, and you look, and it just happens to be all the rules that you've broken. Oh, man, now I'm in trouble. But look what would happen on the Day of Atonement. The priest would carry in a bowl full of this blood of the sacrifice. And he would take that blood and he would put it on the mercy seat, on the corners of the mercy seat, so it would cover over the Ten Commandments. So that these Ten Commandments, which are, which are preaching against you, which are testifying against you, which are showing you your own guilt, these are covered over by the blood of the sacrifice. That's the teaching. In fact, this is just a handy thing for, for us Christians as we read the Old Testament. We say, boy, look at all these sacrifices. Look at all these animals that are dying all the time. What are we to make of that? Well, just think of it. Every time you would be an Israelite and you would take an animal to the altar and you, you are doing it because you committed some sort of particular sin and you carry an animal to the altar and that animal has to be spotless and holy. It can't have any sins at all. And you carry that animal to the altar and you see it bleed and you see it die and you see it burn and you think to yourself, that should have been me. It should have been me on the altar. It should have been me burning like that. It should be me suffering these indignities. But the Lord is accepting the death of another in my place. This is what the old theologians called the substitutionary atonement. The idea that one person can take the place of another. The idea that, that the Lord can accept the death of one for another. And that's exactly what the Lord does with Jesus. It's precisely what he does with our Lord Jesus Christ. He accepts the death of another in our place. So the blood indicates this. The blood indicates sacrifice and the blood indicates atonement. 
The blood indicates the pouring out of one life in place of another. And it's preached all through the Old Testament, through the sacrifices, and then it's brought to us in the New Testament. I just want to roll through a couple of verses. Here's a nice one. Romans 3, verses 24. And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. A propitiation by His blood. That Greek word there, for propitiation is the word hilasterion, which is the word that the Greek Old Testament uses to describe the mercy seat that we were just talking about, that sat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So that Jesus is the place where the blood is applied that stands between us and the righteous wrath of God. Or here's another one from Romans. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved in his life. Or here's another one. Now this is the thing. We're going to run through a handful of verses here, but I want you to pick up on this, that the idea, and, and maybe even this is the whole purpose of this exercise, is that when you're reading the Bible on your own, that when these verses that talk about the blood of Jesus come up, that they would stick out to you, that you'd notice them, that you'd see them, that you'd, you'd recognize that they're all over the place, all over the place. Ephesians 1, verse 7 says, In him that is in Christ Jesus, we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Redemption means to purchase, to pay the price, or to buy back. This is the Old Testament idea. Remember the Old Testament where you could, if you had a huge amount of debt, that you could go to the person that you owed all this money to and you'd say, hey, look, I can't pay you back. So you've got to make me a servant, a slave. And you go to work for them. Now, something amazing happens. This is, you know, the... The old atheists are always busting the chops of the Christians because there's, there's slavery in the Bible. The Bible understands the slavery in two ways. It understands slavery as an uh, economic condition and as a, a condition of war. It does not understand slavery in the current understanding of, of racial subjugation, the idea that one race is, more, is inferior to another. I mean, that comes to us in the soup from which Darwin evolved. That kind of racism is foreign to the scriptures. I mean, the Bible knows. Remember this? According to the Bible, we're all just, we're all one family. We're all related. I mean, even to, just to Noah, we're all related to one another. So we think of each other as family. That's, this is impossible to have this sort of modern idea of slavery. But the Bible does talk about slavery, both as an economic condition and also as a condition of war. And, and the economic condition was this. If you had this, such this crippling debt that you couldn't pay it off, you could go to your debtor and you'd say to him, look, you've got to make me a servant. And then a couple of things would happen. That you would work for him to pay off your debt and that he would be obliged to take care of you and your family. He would give to you and your, and your wife and your children a place to live, clothes to wear, food to eat, and so forth. So that if you were impoverished through debt, the one you were debted to was, was moral, morally obliged to take care of you while you worked off your debt. It's actually, pretty, it's actually a pretty good arrangement. Anyway, 
if you are so, still you're a slave, and you've got to work for this person and do what they say and so forth and so on, but you could be redeemed out of slavery. If you have a relative, a near kinsman, they could come and they could pay your debt, and then you could be uh, set free from the condition of slavery. It's called the, the, the right of kinsman redemption. It comes up in, in the book of Ruth because there's Boaz who can redeem the land of, of uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Uh, and then also it brings in on him the obligation of taking care of Ruth. And there's another guy who's a closer kinsman who has the privilege to do such a thing. And he doesn't do it, so he has to take off his shoe. It's all quite wonderful back in the story. But this is a beautiful picture of what it means to be redeemed. It means you are, you are in debt, you are sold into sin, and another comes and pays the price to set you free. Well, that's what it says in Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Peter says the same thing. Let me flip over to Peter. It says, ah, oh yeah, it says this. He says, uh, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, redeemed, ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So that Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, has spilt his blood to be a ransom for us, to pay the redemption price for us. Colossians says it like this. This is Colossians 1.20. And through him, that is God, through Christ, reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the blood of the cross of Jesus makes peace between heaven and earth. There was a rightful anger that God had towards sinners and really toward all creation because we had broken his law constantly, set, us, set ourselves up as enemies of the divine goodness and divine righteousness. And, and the Lord rightly was ready to punish us for all of our sins. And yet that punishment, that affliction, that that torment instead falls on Jesus, instead of on us, instead of on you, instead of on me. And so by the blood of the cross, there is peace between heaven and earth. Now Hebrews really hones in on this blood. I'll give you a couple of verses here. Here's Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? 
Now, that text is quite a mouthful, but it's really quite beautiful because it says that just as the Old Testament high priest would take the blood of the goat and carry it into the Holy of Holies and pour it on the mercy seat and so cover for the sins of the people, so Jesus has taken his own blood, and he didn't take it into the tabernacle in Jerusalem, but he carried it all the way to the throne of God in heaven, and there his blood is poured out as evidence for your and mine forgiveness. His blood is presented before the throne of God as the proof of his sufficient sacrifice. So that there before the throne of God, where the devil is bringing your sin and my sin day after day, there stands Jesus pleading his own blood, his own sacrifice. The thing that the blood of bulls and goats pictured is here brought in truth and reality. And it prevails. It's incredible. So that it says, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood uh, all those who are being sanctified. The, everything is purified with blood, it says in Hebrews chapter 9. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So that by this blood, by this pouring out of his blood, we have redemption. Here's how Hebrews ends, Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, bless and keep you. So that this blood, the blood of Jesus, makes an eternal covenant between God and man. A covenant of peace and love, a covenant of forgiveness and mercy. So from beginning to end, the Bible is full of blood, and praise be to God that it is. Because the blood that's shed is the blood of Jesus, not yours. And it's shed for you to give you life. All right, we're going to put it together in the next segment. So stay tuned through the break. You're listening to Cross Defense. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We'll be right back. This is Pastor Wolfmuller in the middle of the podcast. Here's a couple of things for you. Number one, if you like this show, you'll probably really like Wednesday Whatnot. Each week I send out a free weekly newsletter with tidbits, theological things that I found as I goof around and study. You can get that every week uh, by subscribing at wolfmuller.co slash Wednesday. That's a Wednesday Whatnot. It's been coming out on Thursdays lately, but who's counting? The other thing is that this show, Cross Defense, and uh, the partner KFUO, which we work together to produce the show, we're looking for sponsors for the show, for the podcast, day sponsors and underwriters and things like that. If your church and your family have enough money and you got some laying around, you're trying to figure out what to do with it, uh, would you let me know? Wolfmuller.co slash contact, and we can talk about ways that we might partner to support the show and keep it going. Thanks so much. Back to Cross Defense. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfman. I want you to imagine with me this. Imagine that on the day that you were born, you were given a white robe. You can make it however you want, you know, if you're, you can make it a doctor's, like a lab coat if you like, or, or put some bedazzled sparkles on it or something like that, if that's your thing. But just imagine yourself with it. It's a, and it's pure white like this, but, but even the moment that you get it, you mess it up. 
you you throw up on it or you make a mess of it. And then you add to that mess every day of your life. I want you to imagine that that every time you sin, <laughs> oh boy, you add a stain to that robe. Every time you take the Lord's name in vain, there's another spot. Every time you tell a lie, there's a tear. Every time you get angry, there's a smudge. Every time you have a lustful thought, a thread comes loose. Every time you despise God's word or skip church or are lazy or greedy or or angry or mean. Every time you do something wrong, it gets dirtier and dirtier. <laughs> I want you to imagine this robe. And imagine through your life what it looks like now. I mean, it's just a, it's a horrible thing to picture. Just threadbare. You know, like a pile of stinky yarn. Who knows what it looks like, but it's not pretty. I mean, you you know the things that you've done wrong. You know how God's law accuses you. And imagine if that, if the record of your own sin, if the record of that accusation was stored on this, on this robe. Now, I want you to imagine that you have to appear before God dressed in this robe. <laughs> Remember the story that Jesus tells a parable? It's kind of a complex parable about the, the king who throws a wedding feast for his son. And the people who are invited don't come, and so, so the king sends out his soldiers to destroy them. But he still has this feast that he wants people to come to, so he goes out and he invites people from everywhere. Just people mulling around. Tell them to come to, the, come to my feast. And then there's still room. The servants say there's still room. So he goes, go out to the highways and buy, grab the people off of the streets and bring them in here for the feast. Because I've got a feast for my son and I want it to be full. And so it seems like the parable is going to end well. All the people are there for the feast, for the son. But the king goes in and he's looking around and he sees that there's someone there not wearing his wedding garments. <laughs> And we have to presume, just to get the parable right, that the king would have provided these wedding garments. After all, he just called people off the street to come into the wedding. So this guy must have received the garment and taken it off for whatever reason. He didn't like the style or something. The king says, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? He cast him into outer darkness where there's weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. Oh, man. If you're not wearing the right clothes, it's trouble. So here you are with your raggedy, stinky, filthy, dirty, completely ridiculous, absurd robe. And you've got to go and appear before the Lord. It's like a nightmare. It's like the nightmares I used to have in middle school where I'd show up to school and I was just in my underwear. <laughs> this is it's just, it's kind of nightmare that this particular picture is. But then you notice... You notice as you're going into the hall to appear before the Lord that there's a big bowl there, a big vat, a big pot. And you notice that the people in front of you are taking their robes, which they also have, which are also filthy, just disgusting. 
and they're dipping they're dipping this robe down into this vat down into this pot and pulling them out and they're perfectly restored can you imagine what is in that pot what's in that what's in that vat that's able to fix such profound stains, that's able to cleanse such deep spots, that's able to rend such deep tears, which is able to restore such wicked deeds. And as you get closer, you look down and you can't believe it. Because there in the vat is blood. Blood. You know that blood doesn't take away stains. Blood is what causes stains. You know that. I know that. My mom knows that. She, Brian, she'd always say to me, bloody knees and bloody elbows and bloody noses. It was blood stains and grass stains all the time growing up, and that stains. You don't use blood to get out stains. Blood is a stain, and yet you too, because there's no other hope for for you and your filthy rags, there's no other hope. So you too take your bundle of stinky rags and and dip it into this vat of blood and pull it out perfect. Utterly perfect. Every spot gone. Every stain removed as if it had never even been there at all every tear perfectly stitched it's in fact in fact it comes out of this blood whiter than it was when you got it in the first place more perfect and more beautiful than anything that you could imagine and you put on this robe and you go and you stand before the judge. Now that's the picture that's put before us in Revelation chapter 7. It is an absolutely incredible text. I think more than any text in the whole Bible, if we want to know how it is with our loved ones and our friends that have died in the faith, we find that information in Revelation chapter 7. I want to read it to you, starting with verse 9. John says, And after this I looked, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation! belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders turns to John. This is kind of funny. One of the elders turns to John, and he looks at all these guys in the white robes, and he says, who are all these people? And John looks back at this elder and says, 
uh, you know. <laughs> this is verse 13. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and where, from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And here's the money verse. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. <laughs> white in the blood of the Lamb. If we're saints, if we're holy ones, if we're wearing white robes, it's not because we've never gotten them stained on anything. It's not because we've lived a perfect life. It's not because we've never done anything wrong. We know better than that. I mean, you know, every one of you listening to me right now can think of the things that you've done to stain your own garments. You can think of the spots that you've made. You can think of the tears in them. You feel the guilt of it. You know it. You, you, you know how, how you've failed to live up to God's standard how you've marred yourself by sin, and you know that you haven't been able to get rid of it yourself. Scrub as you will with your own efforts, with your own good works, with your own religious practices. Scrub as you will. You cannot cleanse yourself. You cannot make yourself holy. You cannot sanctify yourself. You, can, you cannot, by your own accomplishes, accomplishments, manage a holiness which will be able to prevail before the throne of God. You simply can't do it. You have one hope, and that hope is the blood of Jesus. But that's all you need. Because there's not a single stain, there's not a single sin, there's not a single thing that you can do that Jesus is not able to cleanse. <laughs> we say, well, Pastor, what about the unforgivable sin? Don't, go back and read the text. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's the unforgiven sin. It's not like the unforgivable sin is such a huge sin that Jesus can't manage to forgive it. No, he is the Savior. He can forgive it. It's not unforgivable. It's unforgiven. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is, to stuff up your ears to hear the gracious work of God brought to you by the Holy Spirit and the Word. To, st to stand apart from God's grace and say, I don't need it. It's possible to be unforgiven, but there's nothing. Listen, there's nothing that's unforgivable. Jesus has carried all your sins. Jesus has carried all of your sorrows. Jesus has suffered for everything that you've done wrong. It was already it was already atoned for. So that his blood can wash you. He he can wash away every stain, every sorrow, every failure, every sin, everything, all of it. And clothe you in the white robes of his righteousness. Remember, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
so that you are clothed, if you can even imagine it, you are clothed not with the righteousness of Adam and Eve before the fall, you are clothed with the very righteousness of Christ, with his perfection, with his holiness, with his glory. <laughs> do, you, do you imagine, dear friends, that it was hard for Jesus to get into heaven when he ascended? Can you imagine Jesus standing outside saying, would you please let me in? And God saying, well, I'm not quite sure. Do you, do you imagine that it, was, that it was a hard and long conversation for Jesus to kind of trick God into letting him into heaven? No. Do you, can you imagine it that it was the other way, that the gates were thrown open and the Father welcomed back Jesus with open arms who had accomplished everything that he was sent to do? Well, so... So it will be for you. Because that same righteousness, that same perfection that Jesus has, it's yours. These are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Dear saints, you have nothing to fear in death because Jesus has died for you. He's wrapped you in his holiness by forgiving your sins. And when your last day comes, he'll welcome you into the glory of his presence. By his blood, you are alive and you are holy. God be praised for that. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church, and your host every week on Cross Defense. May the Lord be with you this week, give you his hope and his peace. We'll talk to you again next week. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. I told you it wasn't as bad as you thought. This is a lot of good stuff, how the Lord Jesus redeems us from death with his own blood. Oh, God be praised for it. If there was someone you think would be helpful or would be benefited by today's podcast, I hope you'll pass it on to them. And if there's a way for you to rank or review the show on however you download the podcast, that's also really helpful. Helps other people find us who are interested in studying this kind of theology and activating the imagination against the assaults of the devil. So thanks for helping share the good news. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me. You can find a lot more theology and a way to get a hold of me at the website wolfmuller.co, wolfmuller.co. Thanks, look forward to hearing from you and talking with you again next week.